Book Three, Sections Ten through Twelve of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Three, The Henchmen of King Cole, Section Ten. Hal went on to question Keating about the apple blossom girl. Maybe I could guess who she is. What color was her hair? The color of molasses taffy when you've pulled it, said Billy. But all fluffy and wonderful, with stardust in it. Her eyes were brown, and her cheeks pink and cream. She had two rows of pearly white teeth that flashed at you when she smiled? She didn't smile, unfortunately. Then her brown eyes gazed at you, wide open, full of wonder? Yes, they did, only it was into the drug store window. Did she wear a white hat of soft straw with a green and white flower garden on it, and an olive green veil, and maybe cream white ribbons? By George, I believe you've seen her, exclaimed the reporter. Maybe, said Hal, or maybe I'm describing the girl on the cover of one of the current magazines. He smiled. But then, seeing the other's curiosity, seriously, I think I do know your young lady. If you announce that Miss Jessie Arthur is a member of the Harrigan party, you won't be taking a long chance. I can't afford to take any chance at all, said the reporter. You mean Robert Arthur's daughter? Heiress apparent of the banking business of Arthur and Sons, said Hal. It happens I know her by sight. How's that? I worked in a grocery store where she used to come. Whereabouts? Peterson and Company, in Western City. Oh ho, and you used to sell her candy. Stuffed dates. And your little heart used to go pit a pat so that you could hardly count the change? Gave her too much, several times. And you wondered if she was as good as she was beautiful. One day you were thrilled with hope, the next you were cynical and bitter, till at last you gave up in despair and ran away to work in a coal mine. They laughed, and McKellar and Edstrom joined in. But suddenly Keating became serious again. I ought to be away on that story, he exclaimed. I've got to get something out of that crowd about the disaster. Think what copy it would make. But how can you do it? I don't know. I only know I ought to be trying. I'll hang round the train, and maybe I can get one of the porters to talk. Interview with the Coal King's porter, chuckled Hal. How it feels to make up a multi-millionaire's bed. How it feels to sell stuffed dates to a banker's daughter, countered the other. But suddenly it was Hal's turn to become serious. Listen, Mr. Keating, said he. Why not let me interview young Harrigan? You? Yes, I'm the proper person, one of his miners. I help to make his money for him, don't I? I'm the one to tell him about North Valley. Hal saw the reporter staring at him in sudden excitement. He continued, I've been to the district attorney, the justice of the peace, the district judge, the mayor, and the chief of police. Now, why shouldn't I go to the owner? By thunder, cried Billy, I believe you'd have the nerve. 
"'I believe I would,' replied Hal quietly. The other scrambled out of his chair, wild with delight. "'I dare you!' he exclaimed. "'I'm ready,' said Hal. "'You mean it?' "'Of course I mean it.' "'In that costume?' "'Certainly. I'm one of his miners.' "'But it won't go,' cried the reporter. "'You'll stand no chance to get near him unless you're well-dressed.' "'Are you sure of that? What I've got on might be the garb of a railroad hand. Suppose there was something out of order in one of the cars—the plumbing, for example.' "'But you couldn't fool the conductor or the porter.' "'I might be able to. Let's try it.' There was a pause, while Keating thought. "'The truth is,' he said, "'it doesn't matter whether you succeed or not. It's a story if you even make the attempt. The Coal King's son appealed to by one of his serfs. The hard heart of plutocracy rejects the cry of labor.' "'Yes,' said Hal. "'But I really mean to get to him. "'Do you suppose he's got back to the train yet?' "'They were starting to it when I left.' "'And where is the train?' Two or three hundred yards east of the station, I was told.' McKellar and Edstrom had been listening, enthralled to this exciting conversation. "'That ought to be just back of my house,' said the former. "'It's a short train.' Four parlor cars and a baggage car, added Keating. It ought to be easy to recognize. The old Scotchman put in an objection. The difficulty may be to get out of this house. I don't believe they mean to let you get away tonight. By Jove, that's so, exclaimed Keating. We're talking too much. Let's get busy. Are they watching the back door, do you suppose? They've been watching it all day said McKellar. "'Listen,' broke in Hal. "'I've an idea. They haven't tried to interfere with your going out, have they, Mr. Keating?' "'No, not yet.' "'Nor with you, Mr. McKellar?' "'No, not yet,' said the Scotchman. "'Well,' Hal suggested, "'suppose you lend me your crutches.' Whereat Keating gave an exclamation of delight. "'The very thing!' "'I'll take your overcoat and hat,' Hal added. "'I've watched you get about, and I think I can give an imitation. "'As for Mr. Keating, he's not easy to mistake.' "'Billy the fat boy,' laughed the other. "'Come, let's get on the job.' "'I'll go out by the front door at the same time,' put in Edstrom, "'his old voice trembling with excitement. "'Maybe that'll help to throw them off the track.' End of section 10 Section 11 They had been sitting upstairs in McKellar's room. Now they rose and were starting for the stairs, when suddenly there came a ring at the front doorbell. They stopped and stared at one another. "'There they are,' whispered Keating. And McKellar sat down suddenly and held out his crutches to Hal. "'The hat and coat are in the front hall,' he exclaimed. "'Make a try for it.' His words were full of vigor, but like Edstrom his voice was trembling. He was no longer young, and could not take adventure gaily. 
Hal and Keating ran downstairs, followed by Edstrom. Hal put on the coat and hat, and they went to the back door, while at the same time Edstrom answered the bell in front. The back door opened into a yard, and this gave, through a side gate, into an alley. Hal's heart was pounding furiously as he began to hobble along with the crutches. He had to go at McKellar's slow pace, while Keating, at his side, started talking. He informed Mr. McKellar, in a casual voice, that the Gazette was a newspaper which believed in the people's cause, and was pledged to publish the people's side of all public questions. Discoursing thus, they went out of the gate and into the alley. A man emerged from the shadows and walked by them. He passed within three feet of Hal and peered at him narrowly. Fortunately there was no moon. Hal could not see the man's face, and hoped the man could not see his. Meantime Keating was proceeding with his discourse. "'You understand, Mr. McKellar,' he was saying, Sometimes it's difficult to find out the truth in a situation like this. When the interests are filling their newspapers with falsehoods and exaggerations, it's a temptation for us to publish falsehoods and exaggerations on the other side. But we find in the long run that it pays best to publish the truth, Mr. McKellar. We can stand by it, and there's no comeback. Hal, it must be admitted, was not paying much attention to this edifying sermon. He was looking ahead, to where the alley debouched onto the street. It was the street behind McKellar's house, and only a block from the railroad track. He dared not look behind, but he was straining his ears. Suddenly he heard a shout in John Edstrom's voice, "'Run! Run!' In a flash Hal dropped the two crutches, and started down the alley, Keating at his heels. They heard cries behind them, and a voice sounding quite near commanded, HALT! They had reached the end of the alley, and were in the act of swerving, when a shot rang out, and there was a crash of glass in a house beyond them on the far side of the street. Farther on was a vacant lot, with a path running across it. Following this, they dodged behind some shanties, and came to another street, and so to the railroad tracks. There was a long line of freight cars before them, and they ran between two of these, and climbing over the couplings saw a great engine standing, its headlight gleaming full in their eyes. They sprang in front of it, and alongside the train, passing a tender, then a baggage car, then a parlor car. "'Here we are!' exclaimed Keating, who was puffing like a bellows. Hal saw that there were only three more cars to the train. Also he saw a man in a blue uniform standing at the steps. He dashed towards him. "'Your car's on fire!' he cried. "'What?' exclaimed the man. "'Where?' "'Here!' cried Hal, and in a flash he had sprung past the other, up the steps, and into the car." There was a long, narrow corridor to be recognized as the kitchen portion of a dining car. At the other end of this corridor was a swinging door, and to this Hal leaped. He heard the conductor shouting to him to stop, but he paid no heed. He slipped off his overcoat and hat, and then, 
pushing open the door, he entered a brightly lighted apartment, and the presence of the coal king's son. End of section 11 Section 12 White linen and cut glass of the dining saloon shone brilliantly under electric lights, softened to the eye by pink shades. Seated at the tables were half a dozen young men and as many young ladies, all in evening costume, also two or three older ladies. They had begun the first course of their meal, and were laughing and chatting, when suddenly came this unexpected visitor, clad in coal-stained miner's jumpers. He was not disturbing in the manner of his entry, but immediately behind him came a fat man, perspiring, wild of aspect, and wheezing like an old-fashioned steam engine. Behind him came the conductor of the train, in a no less evident state of agitation. So, of course, conversation ceased. The young ladies turned in their chairs, while several of the young men sprang to their feet. There followed a silence, until finally one of the young men took a step forward. "'What's this?' he demanded, as one who had a right to demand. Hal advanced towards the speaker, a slender youth, correct in appearance but not distinguished-looking. "'Hello, Percy,' said Hal. A look of amazement came upon the other's face. He stared, but seemed unable to believe what he saw. And then suddenly came a cry from one of the young ladies, the one having hair the color of molasses taffy when you've pulled it, but all fluffy and wonderful, with stardust in it. Her cheeks were pink and cream, and her brown eyes gazed, wide open, full of wonder. She wore a dinner gown of soft olive green, with a cream-white scarf of some filmy material thrown about her bare shoulders. She had started to her feet. "'It's Hal!' she cried. "'Hal Warner!' echoed young Harrigan. "'Why, what in the world?' He was interrupted by a clamor outside. "'Wait a moment,' said Hal, quietly. I think someone else is coming in. The door was pushed violently open. It was pushed so violently that Billy Keating and the conductor were thrust to one side, and Jeff Cotton appeared in the entrance. The camp marshal was breathless, his face full of the passion of the hunt. In his right hand he carried a revolver. He glared about him, and saw the two men he was chasing. Also he saw the Coal King's son, and the rest of the astonished company. He stood, stricken dumb. The door was pushed again, forcing him aside, and two more men crowded in, both of them carrying revolvers in their hands. The foremost was Pete Hannon, and he also stood staring. The breaker of teeth had two teeth of his own missing, and when his prize-fighter's jaw dropped down, the deficiency became conspicuous. It was probably his first entrance into society, and he was like an overgrown boy caught in the jam closet. Percy Harrigan's manner became distinctly imperious. "'What does this mean?' he demanded. 
It was Hal who answered, I am seeking a criminal, Percy. What? There were little cries of alarm from the women. Yes, a criminal, the man who sealed up the mine. Sealed up the mine? echoed the other. What do you mean? Let me explain. First I will introduce my friends. Harrigan, this is my friend Keating. Billy suddenly realized that he had a hat on his head. He jerked it off. But for the rest, his social instincts failed him. He could only stare. He had not yet got all his breath. "'Billy's a reporter,' said Hal. "'But you needn't worry. He's a gentleman, and won't betray a confidence. You understand, Billy?' Y yes said Billy, faintly. "'And this,' said Hal, "'is Jeff Cotton, camp-marshal at North Valley. I suppose you know, Percy, that the North Valley mines belong to the G.F.C. Cotton, this is Mr. Harrigan.' Then Cotton remembered his hat, also his revolver, which he tried to get out of sight behind his back. "'And this,' continued Hal, is Mr. Pete Hannon, by profession a breaker of teeth. This other gentleman, whose name I don't know, is presumably an assistant breaker. So Hal went on, observing the forms of social intercourse, his purpose being to give his mind a chance to work. So much depended upon the tactics he chose in this emergency. Should he take Percy to one side and tell him the story quietly, leaving it to his sense of justice and humanity? No, that was not the way one dealt with the Harrigans. They had bullied their way to the front. If anything were done with them, it would be by force. If anything were done with Percy, it would be by laying hold of him before these guests, exposing the situation, and using their feelings to coerce him. The Coal King's son was asking questions again. What was all this about? So Hal began to describe the condition of the men inside the mine. They have no food or water except what they had in their dinner pails, and it's been three days and a half since the explosion. They are breathing bad air, their heads are aching, the veins swelling in their foreheads, their tongues are cracking, they are lying on the ground, gasping, but they are waiting kept alive by the faith they have in their friends on the surface who will try to get to them. They dare not take down the barriers, because the gases would kill them at once. But they know the rescuers will come, so they listen for the sounds of axes and picks. That is the situation. Hal stopped and waited for some sign of concern from young Harrigan, but no such sign was given. Hal went on. Think of it, Percy. There is one old man in that mine, an Irishman who has a wife and eight children, waiting to learn about his fate. I know one woman who has a husband and three sons in the mine. For three days and a half the women and children have been standing at the pit-mouth. I have seen them sitting with their heads sunk upon their knees, or shaking their fists, screaming curses at the criminal who is to blame. There was a pause. "'The criminal?' inquired young Harrigan. "'I don't understand.' "'You'll hardly be able to believe it, but nothing has been done to rescue these men. 
The criminal has nailed a cover of boards over the pit mouth, and put tarpaulin over it, sealing up men and boys to die. There was a murmur of horror from the diners. I know, you can't conceive such a thing. The reason is, there's a fire in the mine. If the fan is set to working, the coal will burn. But at the same time, some of the passages could be got clear of smoke, and some of the men could be rescued. So it's a question of property against lives, and the criminal has decided for the property. He proposes to wait a week, two weeks, until the fire has been smothered. Then, of course, the men and boys will be dead. There was a silence. It was broken by young Harrigan. Who has done this? His name is Enos Cartwright. But who is he? Just now, when I said that I was seeking the criminal, I misled you a little, Percy. I did it because I wanted to collect my thoughts. Hal paused. When he continued, his voice was sharper, his sentences falling like blows. The criminal I've been telling you about is the superintendent of the mine, a man employed and put in authority by the General Fuel Company. The one who is being chased is not the one who sealed up the mine, but the one who proposed to have it opened. He is being treated as a malefactor, because the laws of the state, as well as the laws of humanity, have been suppressed by the General Fuel Company. He was forced to seek refuge in your car, in order to save his life from thugs and gunmen in the company's employ. End of section 12